morning, Grace Point. I'm so glad you're with us today. Today is Easter Sunday, a day that usually is celebrated with lots and lots of people in a room together, celebrating, singing, and today is not exactly what we expected. Uh, we had actually planned on three gatherings today. Um, we were all going to be in the same room, sharing hugs and joy, and, ex and an experience that really, really would have been meaningful, and, and it hasn't worked out like we expected. Also kind of felt like today would have been a celebration of the last year we've had together. Um, I began at Grace Point last Easter, and a year, almost a year in together, we've had so many beautiful moments. We've invited and experienced so many new people coming into our family here, and it really has been something to celebrate. There have been challenges. Um, we had our trailer stolen in August. Um, we had the tornado a month or so ago. We've got this current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so there have been challenges, but overall this last year has been one where we've worked together, we've done some really, really good work in the world, and I uh, was so looking forward to celebrating that together today. And, and really, this, our experience, is just a microcosm of the macrocosm. And what I mean is, it's not just affecting us. This COVID-19 pandemic has affected the entire world. It's spread across the globe. Every country, every community has been touched in some way. By this, by this virus, and it's brought a lot with it. It's brought a lot of loss, it's brought a lot of grief, it's brought a lot of worry, it's brought a lot of economic concerns, and while we're moving into Easter, we're carrying all that. I got an email from a friend this week who said, essentially, is it bad if I don't feel super excited about Easter this year? I said, absolutely not. I think the only way you could be super excited right now is if you were ignoring the context. We're in a tough time. We're in a difficult time. It's a time we're going to get through. It's a time that eventually will be in the rearview mirror. But right now, it's tough and it's hard. And we're self-isolating like we should be. And we're practicing social distancing like we should be. And that, in some ways, is making it even harder. Because I don't know about you, I'm not built for quarantine. That's not my personality. That's not how I thrive. And so I think lots of us are starting to feel that wear and tear. And it would be almost manufactured to get up and be sort of happy, clappy, and excited today in a way that um, was ignoring everything that was going on around us. I actually think, though, that the Easter story maybe can be just as, or maybe, so more, uh, maybe more meaningful in this context than we would imagine. So the great philosopher Dallas Willard said, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. And what he was talking about is that sometimes you're so used to something or someone that you've been around them so much that you sort of become unfamiliar with them. You just take it for granted that this is what it is and what it means, or this is who they are and this is what they mean. Uh, and that familiarity can kind of creep up on us and then make us unfamiliar. I experience this every time I spend a day or two away from my kids. So if they go to a grandparent's for a couple days or, or a night and they come back and it's only been 12 to 24 to 36 hours usually, um, and they come back and somehow it looks like they're taller and they're talking more and they're saying phrases that I don't remember them saying before and they've come back and it's like they've come back and they've grown while they were gone. Now the reality is they grow every day. They do something every day that is probably new and it is probably a brand new experience, but I'm so used to them being here 24 seven right now. I'm so used to them all being here that I just sort of miss it. I don't pay attention to it, I don't see it. I become so familiar with them that I become unfamiliar with them. And I think that's what we do with Easter. I, I think that's what we've done with the Easter narrative. I, I think we've become so familiar with Easter that we've become unfamiliar. 
And, and here's what I mean. We, we tend to think of Easter as being a, a bright and celebratory time. We, we think of pastels, like the pink pastel shirt I'm wearing right now. We think of baby ducks and chicks emerging from their eggs. We, we tend to think of everything as bright. The grass is lush and green there, butterflies. Uh, and it just sort of feels like this big celebratory moment. But if we go back to the context of the Easter story, the first Easter experience, um, it actually wasn't that. Not in the beginning, anyway. The first account we have of, of the Easter moment would have been from a writer named Paul uh, in his letter to the First Corinthians. And he doesn't really give us any details. He just says that God raised up Jesus. He doesn't talk about an empty tomb. He doesn't talk about people going to the tomb or angels or stones being rolled away. It doesn't seem like he was aware of any of those, those things. He's talking about Jesus died and Jesus was raised up. The first account we have of Jesus, uh, the narrative around the first Easter is in the Gospel of Mark. And what's super interesting in the Gospel of Mark is that at the end of the encounter, at the end of the record, Jesus doesn't show up. Um, there's an empty tomb. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. And it sort of leaves it hanging. There's some additional endings that have been added to Mark because there are people along the way, scribes, who thought that's not the way the story should really end. It ends by saying these women left the tomb and said nothing to no one. Um, and so they added on some additional endings. But in reality, the, the first story of Easter found in the Gospels is a story of an empty tomb and people not knowing what to do with it. And the way Mark begins his story, he talks about these women who had been faithful disciples of Jesus. The, the men are somewhere hiding and afraid, but the women gather spices on Sunday morning, what we know as Easter, but they didn't know as Easter. Uh, and they went to the tomb, not to find a risen Christ, not to be surprised with the stone rolled away, not to have some, some angelic being tell them that he's not here, he's been raised. They went to the tomb expecting to do the last kind thing they could do for their friend and teacher. They were going to give him a proper burial. And the, the Common English Bible actually says this phrase very bluntly, and it's almost so bluntly that it makes us cringe a little bit. It says that they came with spices to anoint Jesus's dead body. I mean, you can't get more blunt than that. Uh, they came prepared to anoint and care for the dead body of their teacher and friend. In Luke's account, Luke 24, the women show up again to the tomb to prepare the body of Jesus for burial, and they encounter a couple of angels who say, why do you look for the living among the dead? But they weren't looking for the living. They were looking for the dead. They had assumed that Jesus' story was over. He'd been executed. He'd been abandoned by his followers and friends. Everybody had bailed out. He died alone on a Roman cross, and he was buried, and it was over. They came looking for the dead. Later in Luke 24, there are a couple of uh, Jesus' followers who are walking uh, on a journey to a town called Emmaus, and they don't know that Jesus has been raised. And suddenly Jesus kind of merges with them on the road. And so you have these two disciples and Jesus walking on the road, and Jesus asks what they're talking about. And they say, gosh, you, have you not heard what's happened about this Jesus of Nazareth? We, we really had put all of our, no Easter pun intended, we put all of our eggs in that basket, and he was executed. And then they have this phrase to say, we had hoped he was the one. You sense that? We had hoped he was the one. The implication is, but he wasn't. He's dead. We, we thought he was the one who was going to bring peace. We thought he was the one who was going to rescue us. We thought he was the one who was going to run the Romans out of town. We thought he was the one who was going to be our Messiah. And he died. 
the, the first Easter story is not a context of people walking to a tomb going, man, I can't believe three days are already up and Jesus is going to be alive. It was people who had experienced one of the greatest tragedies of their life on Friday when all of their hopes and all of their expectations and all of their dreams had been nailed to a cross and came crumbling down. Like if you want to get the Easter context, the context of Easter is disappointment, heartbreak, and hopelessness. The context of Easter is trying to make, kind of come to terms with something that has happened that you didn't ask for and that you hoped would never happen and it happened anyway. And what we often do as, as, East, as Easter people, as Christians, is we jump to the, hey, Jesus is alive. Look, he's showing up. Look, he's got scars to prove his, that he's legit. Look, we jump to all of that. And what we end up missing is this part of Easter. The Easter dawns. When the sun rises on Easter morning, none of Jesus' followers expect what's about to happen. They walk in grief to a tomb to anoint the dead body of a teacher and friend they believed was destined for greatness and instead was executed by the empire. One of the most interesting stories uh, of Jesus' resurrection in the Gospels is in John chapter 20, where one disciple, Mary Magdalene, goes to the tomb and finds that Jesus isn't there. And she comes back and tells the other disciples and Simon Peter and all, we're know, all we know is that this other disciple is called the one that Jesus loved, get in a foot race to the tomb, and the writer makes sure to tell us who won. It's this real petty squabble. And they go to the tomb, and they find Jesus isn't there, and there's the burial clothes, and they go, and they leave. They go back, wondering what might have happened. But Mary, who seems to have deeply loved Jesus, stays by the tomb, weeping. And in John 20, verse 11, it says, Mary stood outside the tomb, crying. As she cried, she bent down to look into the tomb. She saw two angels dressed in white, seated where the body of Jesus had been, one at the head and one at the foot. The angels asked her, woman, why are you crying? She replied, they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. As soon as she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Sir, uh, thinking he was the gardener, she replied, sir. If you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned around and in Aramaic exclaimed, Rabuni, which means teacher, rabbi. What an interesting, sort of beautiful story. Mary stands outside the tomb, and she has this conversation with these two angels, and she turns around, and she's in the presence of Jesus, but she thinks he's the gardener. In John, it's very clear that Jesus was placed in a garden tomb. And so Mary thinks it's sort of the caretaker. It's the person who cares for the garden and cares for the tombs in the garden. And Jesus says her name and right away she knows who he is. So it almost seems like Mary has a problem. Like it's a case of mistaken identity. She just doesn't recognize Jesus. She thinks he's a gardener. But here's the thing. She's right. <laughs> she is exactly right. Because what John has been doing throughout John's entire gospel is telling a story of new creation. John begins in John 1, 1, in the beginning. What other book of the Bible do we know that begins with those words? In the beginning. Yeah, Genesis. The book of Genesis is telling a story of creation. In the beginning. John is telling a story of new creation. And what is to me, really interesting is that John situates the last moments of Jesus' life and resurrection, situates them in the context of a garden, and they think Jesus is a gardener. Now, I think what John is trying to say to us 
is new creation is bursting forth in this story right in the middle of the old. Right? Something new is happening. In a place of death, life is coming. In a place of loss, joy can be found. John is telling a story that says that these moments, the minor key of life, uh, aren't sort of aberrations. They're part of the story. And yet, even in the difficult moments, something new and transformative is bubbling up and beginning to grow. And right now, I'm looking out, I have a window right here. I'm looking out this window, and I see out this window a gentle breeze blowing, and I see trees that are beginning to bud, and I see grass that looks greener than it did before, and I, I hear birds chirping that weren't chirping that long ago. Creation, right in the middle of winter, spring begins to come. And I think we tend to think of, of, of a new world or a new creation like this. We have to go up here somewhere in the sky with God, and then we'll start something new and leave behind the old. That's not the story. Or we get rid of all the old, and then something new comes in its place. That's not the story. The story is that in the middle of the old, in the middle of the death and decay of winter, the first blossoms of spring begin to grow. In the middle of the death and decay of winter, new life begins emerging and creeping and crawling and moving. And you may not recognize it at first. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. You're so used to your yard, you don't notice until maybe a few days go by that something new is happening out there, that life is emerging from death. And that the death of winter, no matter how cold it was, no matter how much snow or less snow there was, that none of that takes away the power of spring. Something new is emerging. And Mary is standing right at the epicenter of new creation. It's happening all around her. And she still weeps. I think there's something to it that when Jesus, later in John's gospel, presents himself to the disciples, um, that one disciple, Thomas, wants to see the scars. And Jesus holds his hands up and says, See, the, the risen Christ still has scars, they're not gone. They're transformed, but they're not gone. Mary is standing right in front of Jesus, risen, raised up, and she still weeps. The context of Easter, the joy of Easter, doesn't take away the pain that preceded Easter. Right? The, the joy and celebration of everything becoming new again doesn't mean that we didn't just come through a hard winter. And one of the things I keep thinking about when it comes to this particular context right now with the, the COVID pandemic is that even when things are, are beginning to go back to normal, even when we're allowed to go back to work and we're allowed to gather in person again, things still aren't going to be normal. There's going to be a lot of unprocessed grief. I think all of us are carrying, I, I had a friend who um, pointed this out to me a couple weeks ago, and it was so, so true that right now everybody is in a collective state of grief. And it is completely and totally appropriate to stand outside of the empty tomb in front of the risen Christ weeping. Because Jesus carries scars too. I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that everything's not just going to be okay in a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months. That there's all sorts of trauma and baggage that are going to come along with this. And if we don't acknowledge it and process it, if we don't enter deeply into it so that we can come out of it, then we're not going to be able to really move on. And I think the Easter story is trying to tell us that as Mary weeps outside an empty tomb. Easter begins in the context of crushed hopes and dreams. I can't think of a more apt setting for the Easter story than the one we're living in now. 
crushed hopes and dreams, loss and grief, economic uncertainty, fear, all of it's very real. And all of it is very present in the Easter story. But Easter will come. I think we'll actually celebrate two Easter's this year. We'll celebrate this one, and then we'll celebrate the one when we're all back in the same space together. Because right now, we are still in the middle of our Lenten Good Friday moment, where things are difficult and challenging, and we're, we're, not, we're not there yet, and we're not moved on yet, and we're not ready for resurrection yet. We're not ready for, to celebrate new life just yet. We're still grieving. And standing today, as we are, right outside an empty tomb, we grieve, and we weep, and we long for a day when we can be together again. We long for a day where we don't have to be concerned about wearing masks and gloves when we go to the gas station or grocery store. We long for that day to come. And that day will come. That day will come. But we can't leap to that. Right? Easter happens because of a Good Friday experience. The tomb is empty because the cross wasn't. Jesus dies and he's raised. But all the grief, all the loss, all the uncertainty, all the fear, all of that coalesces. And in the same moment these disciples experience joy, they experience also grief. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus appears to the disciples, it's on a mountain. And all of them are gathering, and it says some of them worshipped and some doubted. Right? I mean, that's, that's the Easter story. Some of them were just overwhelmed with joy, and some of them were wondering, how can this be? That's the context of Easter. And familiarity has brought us into unfamiliarity. And so I wonder for us, what is the appropriate response for Easter? I think the appropriate response for Easter is whatever you're feeling. If today you are feeling celebratory because Easter gives you hope, it gives you something to look forward to, then yes, celebrate that. But don't minimize also the grief. Today, if you need to cry, if you need, if you need to curse today, whatever it is that, that this grief has done in you, be present to that. Acknowledge that. Don't fast forward through it. Because, friends, Easter is coming. Not just a day on a calendar, but the Easter experience that we're all longing for. It's coming. It's coming. It just may take a little while to get here. Frederick Beekner, one of my favorite writers, says this. He says, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection means the worst thing is never the last thing. Crosses aren't the end of the story. Grief isn't the end of the story. COVID-19 isn't the end of the story. There's another story being told. And while we have breath in our lungs, we are people who ultimately trust that the worst thing isn't the last thing. That as we keep moving forward, we can do so in hope and expectation, trusting that the grief we feel now will be processed into a joy that we'll experience later. My, my friends, my community, my family, resurrection means that the worst possible things that happen to us are never the last things. They do not tell the story. They do not define our story. Something else is coming, and it's going to be so, so beautiful. That's the Easter story. So today, if you woke up in grief, if you woke up going, I don't know how much longer I can stay in this house, if you woke up wondering 
about our, your friends and family who work in the medical field and you're worried about their well-being and you're worried about their safety as they're out putting themselves at risk for the well-being of others. If you're worried about how you're going to be able to pay your bills, if you're worried about the economy, all of those are real and valid worries. And that sense of concern and grief would have been very familiar to our spiritual ancestors as they awoke, not to find the risen Christ, but they awoke expecting to find the body of Jesus to be anointed. And they were really shocked and surprised when the worst thing wasn't the last thing. And I hope and trust for us, not only as a community, not only as a state, not only as a country, but in this world, that this moment isn't the last thing. And it will not define us. What will define us is our response to these moments. And we see so many beautiful responses happening where government perhaps fails. People are stepping up and doing really beautiful work, risking themselves, putting themselves and their well-being um, in harm's way to, to care for and love and serve the people who are in deep need. That's a resurrection story.